0: Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, it's
0: Peter Oborn
1: here on a rather lovely, still, balmy Wiltshire morning.
0: Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London where it's slightly overcast and um, a little bit breezy. And um, we're recording this on the anniversary of Don Bradman's last innings in Test Cricket at the Oval, the one where he was out for a second ball duck and um, robbed himself of an average of 100 in Test Cricket.
1: And we have a wonderful guest back for a second innings. It's the great historian André Odendal, who we are enormously honoured to have on this podcast. Richard, perhaps you could introduce André
0: yes indeed andre uh, you were a first-class cricketer yourself but um, you're an administrator now of south african cricket but perhaps most importantly uh, you've made it your almost life's work as a historian to reclaim the lost history of south african cricket and that's the history of um, cricket by Black and mixed race and uh, cricketers of Asian origin in South Africa who've been almost deliberately expunged from the record until recently by the white controllers of uh, South African cricket. Andre, welcome back to the podcast and thank you for joining us.
2: Uh, Thanks very much, uh, Richard and Peter. It's uh, nice to be talking cricket again after the Olympics, which were wonderful to watch at this time of global anxiety and crisis um, and um, I read yesterday about um, John Arlett commentating on Bradman's last innings and the incredible emotion that he felt and um, he put a commentator's curse on Bradman by saying you know you'll surely get that one run that he <laughs> but couldn't see through the tears and the emotion someone said uh, quite amazing.
1: Mm. Uh, one of the things i've read, i haven't heard the commentary, but I've read an account of it. Think about Arla. when Bradburn was out, he allowed a long period of silence so the uh, listeners could hear the crowd and and they didn't feel the need to intrude and i There's a sort of confidence and a wisdom about that kind of commentary which mm. I'm not certain we'd get today
2: mm. wonderful commentator and writer.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, we he we, it's interesting how often Arlett comes up in this podcast talking to all kinds of different people who, like Pat Murphy the other day, you know, just who he gave a day and a half to when Pat Murphy, terrific British broadcaster, 50 years ago, Arlett just gave him a day and a half to teach him the ropes. Or the other one was um Duncan Hamilton, who so says as a very young boy, you know, he's not a great a biographer of... Uh, of English cricket, uh, but you know, he says, as a youngster, aged eighteen, Arlett took him aside, gave him endless time and of compassion to to make him feel at home and uh, and belong. And again and again, Henry Blofeld said the Henry same Blofeld, thing uh, about uh, his Could he cite
0: that? It could cite that of Ian Botham as well? He was a mentor to Botham,
1: and uh, so we, you know, we, he's one of the people we try and channel. Really, I think mm-hmm. that sort of because what he had apart from his amazing sense of poetry and love richness mm. of words was a deep wisdom i think
2: mm. yeah. and of course as you wrote he was also involved with dolivera and south africa mm.
1: well he what was it that he said uh, when he arrived in south africa what race are you yeah. and he said the human race
2: yeah know. he um had to fill in the um Arrival forms, I think the story is, and uh, refused to put his category of race down.
1: And of course, it was John Arlott who received these letters written in green ink from somebody completely unknown in South Africa. He received them in 1960, and they were from Basil D'Oliveira, saying, I've exhausted all my possibilities in South Africa. I'd like to get a job as a cricketer in England. And I think 99% of us would have ignored those letters from somebody unknown in green ink, but actually they were rather beautifully written, and, mm. and Arlet paid attention to them and uh, went to enormous lengths to um, secure a job in league cricket for Basil D'Oliveira, and then was a sort of guardian angel. Even though Basil wasn't aware of it, Arlet was looking always watching out for him thereafter, and very conscious as well of the political social significance of what he was doing. And so and but for Arlott, of course, Basil would never have got to England, I don't think. And it was a very historically consequential thing which happened there. And so he was he 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 enabled that great story to happen.
2: And changed the course of cricket his South African cricket history. Indeed.
0: Yeah. Going back a little earlier, John Hollott refused to after that first visit to South Africa, because in 1948-49, he um, he refused to go out there again, didn't he? Even at the at a risk to his to his career as a commentator.
2: Uh, there were very very few people uh, at that stage, and uh, Reverend David Shepherd was another. And uh, the anti-apartheid movement started taking root in the late 50s uh, in Britain. And by the mid-60s, it had grown quite strong. And from that time onwards, more and more people uh, started standing up and voicing their opposition to uh, whites-only teams from South Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, um, Richard, um, I think we're speaking today about uh, post-union after South Africa became a new country in 1910. And it's very appropriate to be speaking about D'Oliveira now because uh, he was the first person after a 100 years, nearly, or 70 years of rigid segregation imposed in the 1890s when promising cricketers like uh, Crom Hendricks, about whom a book has just been written, and uh, Richard Perry and John T. Winch, the authors, and the book have been nominated for the I think it's called the Lord Aberdeer Prize for the best um, uh, sports book. So we think that hopefully will follow in the Oborn book on Dalveira uh, in bringing more South African cricket history to the attention of the of the British uh, readership. And uh, really, um, from that time to Dalveira. Black South African cricketers were then totally, the door was totally closed for them, unlike the West Indies and India later, where um, people gradually came in um, and started playing for their country. In South Africa, the door was completely closed. And only one player um, got through that, through that door, and that was uh, C.B. Llewellyn. And he, like Crom Hendricks, who we spoke about, and, um, was classified as colored, but he lived in the Natal colony at that stage, and um, his background was either Mauritian or Suntalinen, and like, like Hendricks, but um, in that, in that um, colony uh, where the mass of uh, people were, were Zulu, the small colored community um, got a position closer to white society uh, than being excluded, as happened in the Cape. And he was picked for South Africa and also ended up going to play in England 60 years before Dahlavira and uh, was very successful there. So, But for thousands of others in those 70 years, the door was shut. And uh, what happened after Union was uh, that when South Africa became the country called South Africa, was that from one white body and one body for the people excluded, segregation started increasing almost immediately because it was now the whites in South Africa back in charge uh, or, or, you know, running the country politically, excluding um, Black people, except a small group of voters in the Cape and free of British uh, colonial autonomous from Britain, but still part of the empire and um, still a dominion. And in 1913, the Land Act was passed, which uh, designated 87 percent of the land of South Africa for the ownership of the white population which amounted to something like 13% in later years. And the 13% of land that um, was left over is where Africans had to fit in in the so-called native reserves. Um, So uh, there was a huge breakup of the land and partitioned racially. In the 1920s, that started happening in the cities as well. So there was legislation passed to say black people couldn't live in the city center and separate spaces were made for them on the margins. And as the cities grew, they were pushed further and further out. So today in Cape Town, for instance, uh, the poorest people to get to work have to take a taxi uh, in a time when train services aren't working properly and pay uh, the fares for 50 kilometers and almost subsidize um, you know, with the poverty as to still uh, take on those kind of uh, financial burdens. And that is how South Africa became very rigidly segregated by the 1950s. And the result of this people being forced to live in separate urban spaces was the breakup of that first South African colored cricket board which had been formed before the Australian Cricket Board and long before West Indies and Indian Boards to represent the people not in the whites, only sucker. And in 1923, under this pressure, people living in different spaces started organising also, uh, under pressure too, because of everything being segregated racially, uh, into first the South African Independent Coloured Cricket Board, Then in 1930, the African cricketers broke away to what was called the South African Bantu Cricket Board, which uh, Bantu is a word for people, a name for people, um, for the African cricketers. And then the Indian Cricket Union, uh, being a small population in South Africa, um, was not uh, desirous of forming, a separate national body, but eventually did that in 1941 as well. And so by 1948, when apartheid comes in, and in the few years after that, you eventually had seven national bodies calling themselves South Africa. The first one, of course, was the South African Cricket Association for Whites, which played all the test matches and the official cricket And the others uh, were people playing on the other side of the line in poor conditions and unreported and unknown broadly. And these were a separate body for Africans, a separate body for colored Christians, a separate body for Muslim colored people um, or the the old Malay board um, and the Indian board. And then there was also a white women's cricket association formed in 1952, which was 20 years after the first internationals between Australia, England, and New Zealand in women's cricket. For some reason, um, they didn't join like playing against the countries of empire like the men, and that only happened in 1960 when the first uh, England women's touring team visited South Africa and played on all the test match. Um, Andre, what you're France. talking
1: about here is a kind of divide and rule, isn't it, which the uh, British specialised in, too, in India. I mean, I remember talking to Frankie Bracky, who was Basil D'Olivera's, or is Basil D'Olivera's, a wonderful man, his brother-in-law, and he told me, you know, from our community point of view, we had our own, social apartheid the muslims wanted to have nothing to do with the coloreds the coloureds wanted nothing to do with the blacks i mean that's uh quite dangerous isn't it it's quite invidious
2: yeah well that you know you had communal cricket in india as well and it to some extent reflected that um that situation so it was a, a colonial kind of divide and rule situation, because as we'd seen in the 1880s to uh, to 1900 or so, there was a a vigorous um, movement towards integrated cricket and black players playing together. But you're right, that's how it ended up. But after 1948, you then had the beginning of militant resistance against apartheid through campaigns like the Defiance Campaign Against Unjust Laws, where people entered post offices and sat on park benches designated for whites only. And in line with that uh, movement, there was a coming together again of black cricketers as had happened in, in the one body that was broken up. And they kept a non-racial um, perspective alive. And a new body called SACBOC, the South African Cricket Board of Control was formed and started playing inter-race cricket. So these different national bodies played against each other in inter-race tournaments. And then Challenging Apartheid formed the first ever team that uh, was picked, was open to all South Africans, as you know, Peter, in 1956 to tour Kenya with Dolivera as captain. And that was the beginning of non-racial cricket, with um, black cricketers said now, we are insisting that we only mobilize and organize on the basis of individual cricketers and not in terms of racial groupings. And that was also a big step forward in the isolation that would come later. Um, you know, um, in respect of the white cricketers, because it became, from within, challenged this uh, racial exceptionalism um, and continued playing in complacent ways in international cricket. Would you say that that that
1: team which Basil D'Olivera led to East Africa was the first, I mean, because it didn't ban whites, whites, it uh, was the first real South African test cricket team or cricket national cricket team more yes
2: i think that in you know in principle it was open to all south africans it was making a statement that um, cricket should be united and that was the only acceptable way going into the 1960s as south africans started protesting more forcefully against
1: uh, apartheid and then you've got this amazing moment didn't you when uh, the West Indies wanted to come and play. Yeah. And that Frank Worrell's West Indies team were invited to play by Sackbock, I think. Yeah. And they were really keen to come and they knew what it meant. And it was actually legal under the rules of apartheid because it was uh, as non-white versus non-white. And actually, it it was quite an interesting moment when it was blocked by the anti-racial movement, wasn't it?
2: Yes, because they would be coming uh, now to play in South Africa at a time when people were saying we're no longer playing racial sport. They would have to play against black teams only, get special permission to play on on better grounds and also live in segregated spaces. And really, it was a very important statement to make, uh, although many cricketers were disappointed at losing out on that what would have been a first opportunity, but it made the it made the it drew the lines that and uh, you know that unless there was basic respect for cricketers regardless of their colour, there wouldn't be normality or cricketers normal in South Africa, and uh, the, it did it did create um, tensions within black ranks. But it it proved to be the the right thing to do with hindsight, certainly.
1: I had the honour of talking to Basil d'Olivera about this when I wrote my biography of Basil. And he was quite clear that this was absolutely heartbreaking to him, that he he was down to be the captain of the first non-racial South African team playing against the West Indies the then the finest cricket team in the world um and it, it it was a sort of a huge professional challenge for him and actually they got very close to playing you know they they they'd actually made the caps and the kit and the the sponsorship I think I spoke to the guy Brie Bourbilia, who's a textile magnate who set it all up and and it was devastating for 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 the cricketers. I think that this team uh, this this never went ahead.
2: That really takes one into the sixties, and during that uh, decade, uh, because the path was closed for international cricket uh, for for the black players, they uh, from the fifties you had top South African black sportsmen going abroad to try and prove themselves, and started with the uh, Ron Eland. Um, in 1948, he went to the Olympics as a weightlifter by qualifying for Britain. Jake Tooley, a diminutive boxer from Soweto, went to Britain and became the empire champion. And uh, Albert johannson went and played for Leeds uh, United. In, in He was a magician on, from memory, the right wing, wasn't he?
1: Until he was hacked pieces by sort of by English, le- English left backs. Um,
2: I think the first uh, black player to play in an FA Cup final, was that right? Yeah. Uh, yes. In, in Britain. And um, yeah, so he was one of many. There were also uh, rugby players, the Samai brothers in tennis, played at Wimbledon. The wonderful story of a virtually destitute caddy, Papua Segolam, in Durban, who... Um, was playing with someone who was pretty wealthy. And was caddying for him. He asked the caddy uh, what uh, what iron should I use, and he said uh, six or seven. He he took it and didn't uh, wasn't on target. And he said, "You told me the wrong club to use." And Papua said, "No, sir, that was right. I'll show you." And he dropped it within six inches of the pin. And uh, this guy was the inventor of oil of Olay beauty cream during the war. Uh, Look, you know, working on experiments with uh, with sheep's wool to get oil. And uh, he decided to fly Papua to Europe to play in the, he won the Dutch Open and he participated in the British Open. And having been so successful, um, he was then allowed to play in the Natal Open in 1963, where he beat Gary Player in front of a, a, a very enthusiastic crowd. So, this was a, from a poverty in, you know, a Caddy, who became a national champion in Europe and beat Player on, on his home ground. Um, but had to receive his prize outside in the rain, mm-hmm. uh, after which the rest of the players went inside to continue the celebrations, and he was not allowed in the clubhouse. A very sad and poignant story, particularly as um, Gary Player at that stage was openly supportive of uh, the architect of apartheid, Dr. Verwoerd, and he said, I am a South African, and I must say now and clearly that I am the South Africa of Wurt and Apartheid, and that our country is the product of its instinct and ability to maintain civilized standards amongst the alien barbarians, because to have abandoned them would have meant its disappearance. A good deal of nonsense is talked about segregation. We in South Africa believe that our races should develop separately but in parallel. So I I have to say
1: something about Gary Player. Remember, he was celebrated for ages in the golfing fraternity. I mean, Ververt was basically a Nazi, wasn't he, by ideology and training? And um, to have some for Gary Player to remain something of a hero in the
2: world of golf um, is quite troubling. I think the uh, you know again, if one looks uh, globally. Um, it's probably his his his, um, his views would have been not seen as unexceptional at in you know, Augusta and other places, but he never said sorry, and that you know that simple word "I'm sorry" or "I was wrong" is all it would have taken to redress a fundamental dishonesty uh, that underpins his image still as one of the greatest golfers in history. So it would be so nice if Gary Player, and this deals and this relates to what we're talking about now in South Africa with the Black Lives Matter and the yearrings that are taking place, uh, where one third of all cricketers, black cricketers who've played for South Africa, and a huge percentage, about over 50% of those who played from 1991 to 2017. Said they felt uh, cultural alienation and discrimination in the national setup. And that's all come out now, uh, which is a very healthy thing, uh, because this kind of denial and silences over the past really um, Nelson Mandela praised Gary Player as a great ambassador for the new South Africa uh, with his generosity and. Uh, aim to reconcile but the the gestures have not been reciprocated unfortunately on the other side and i hope it's not too late for gary player just to say that when um, uh, you know so that he can also uh, achieve some peace in his late life i suppose
0: i'd like to take a sort of step back for mave andre to what you told us earlier uh, in fact it, it, last appearance, and you talked about the influence of Cecil Rhodes in basically breaking up the emerging black African middle class which might have sustained cricket. Mm. And it seems to me that there was, what you were saying, there's very much a, an ideological element to the suppression of uh, black and coloured um, and, and uh, Asian-origin cricketers in South Africa because you've got this ideology that cricket is a mark of civilization, and these other races... Could never achieve civilization, haven't, haven't you?
2: That's exactly the, the point. And, um, you know, it was um, Jan Morris, the historian, has written about uh, the club in the colonies being the place where the British celebrated their differences and superiority from the unadmitted millions. And uh, I mean, that is, it was an exclusive class and racial (laughs) place in the the, the colonies and in South Africa, then uh, by extension for right until 1990, um, only very few clubs had by 1990 um, started opening up. So what the MCC... You know, the MCC's attitudes towards women with the first women only perhaps sitting in the long room in the 1990s actually is is parallel with us Mm. and the racial (laughs) question in South Africa. It's quite astounding when you think of it looking back 30 years later, but that is how deep discrimination has been in South African cricket. It's It's been uh, since 1795 we've been playing cricket in South Africa and it's only since 1991 that uh, cricketers have been playing together under one body. That's 30 years only and it's uh, not really uh, surprising that they're still teething problems in reaching a kind of equitable uh, situation in cricket and also... Uh, being comfortable with each other and developing um, new cultures of cricket where we all buy into it and maybe can win the World Cup at some time. Mm. And, and
0: just, and I'd also like to ask you about the racial segregation in um, South African cricket requires the collusion, doesn't it, of the white cricket world outside, doesn't it? It requires the um, the acceptance of it by the, M- the MCC, who was then running international cricket, the you know, the white cricket boards of Australia and New Zealand to go on playing South Africa. And it requires the collusion of, um, you know, historians, doesn't it, and statisticians, where your work comes in. It requires, um, so even even wisdom, year after year, records only the achievements of, of white cricketers, as if there were no, you know, um, black and um, uh, and mixed race and Asian cricketers
2: at all in South Africa. And unfortunately, that is the case, and I think it is being recognized now. We write quite forcefully about that in divided country, because what we've tried to do in this 20 years enterprise so far is to go back to day one in the history of South African cricket and tell the story in that broader context. And from the very first day, from the first match at Greenpoint Common in 1806 that we know about, there were... Black people coming behind, pushing the carts to serve the wine and the lunch on the lovely summer afternoon under the mountain. And um, um, sure, when some of the officers had had a bit too much for lunch, they sent out a few local guys to field for them perhaps, Mm. and that's how how the cricket starts to become a South African game. And uh, we're still struggling to make it that in 2021. But um, it's it's an incredible story, really. It's it's epic and dramatic. How uh, I think we've got 2,500 cricketers already who played provincial cricket um, as white players played, but only the white players are recognized in the scorebooks. And that includes, unfortunately, wisdom and the Association of Cricket Statisticians, because what they did was through the colonial networks, had friends with the statisticians in South Africa who fed them the story, and that became a whites only statistical history. And it's only now that we, through needle in a haystack research, have been able actually to put uh, several hundred scorecards together which in fact, uh, more than that, it'll be well over a thousand at, at a representative cricket level. And in those thousand scorecards, there's several thousand cricketers. We're now busy with volume four, which is the statistical history from 1960 to 1991. And already uh, 225 three-day match scorecards uh, have been uh, done by uh, a wonderful enthusiast called Krish Reddy from Durban, who has got recognition for as an amateur lover of the game for putting these st- stats together fairly early in the 1990s, 2000s. But there were also A list cricket games, one day matches for Benson and Hedges and other competitions, and also B section. So in South Africa, B-section matches are recognized under Saka and the Curry Cup. And they were also, under the South African Cricket Board of Control and its successor, the South African Cricket Board, those B-section games. And currently myself and uh, another professional statistician called Klaus Munch have put together, Class has now, uh, another 240 scorecards of these games that Krish felt were beyond uh, being able to collect together. Um, I was lucky before Yusuf Lorgat died, the match secretary of the old board, to visit him and uh, he gave me these records that he had stored in his garage waiting for the moment one day that someone would be interested in them. And those are the records we're now looking uh, to digitize or put into electronic format so that they can then bring a much fuller record of South African cricket to the fore. And hopefully um, the uh, ACS, I think it's called, said that they'd be interested to work with us and we will be in touch with them to try and finalize that record as completely as possible and then hopefully, as you and Peter, I think, have also um, felt would be a good idea to start lobbying for recognition of these matches um, so that as part of becoming whole as cricket in South Africa, we actually say that person played in 1947. He played for Western Province and scored 55 not out against Natal. Like all other cricket lovers are able to report uh, you know to look dig into the yellow pages of wisdom and say that match happened then i was three years old 13 years old and watched it and so on and that is the kind of ownership and the cultural belonging and uh, uh, being fully part of that still has to happen in south african cricket
1: we ought to have you been in touch with uh lawrence booth the editor of wisdom to discuss this extremely serious matter no, but I'm sure he'll be, you know,
2: he'd be open to it. We want to yes, you know he's
1: very, he's, yeah. I think he's a super, we yeah. both think we do, he's a wonderful does. editor. I think uh, maybe we should put you in touch with Lawrence Booth. Okay. And uh, it's something which wisdom is a lot of work for wisdom, but it's, some, it's a major healing act by uh, wisdom, which c- can be done, can't it?
0: Winston's done a great deal under his editorship in the last two editions to restore the lost history of um, women's cricket in England, and, yeah. um, and to bring it, you know, to bring it back to life. So I'm sure he'd do the same here.
2: We used to buy it every year, yeah, but it's too expensive now coming in pounds and thick covers. (laughs) So you don't find wisdom sold in the bookshops anymore um, as it used to be when I was growing up, you know, or even studying. It would be very, very significant if some kind of gesture symbolically could be made. Uh, We've even had difficulty, I must say, unfortunately. In getting enthusiasm in our South African cricket annual for the kind of uh, this kind of redress in terms of historical recognition and so on, Um, there have been things uh, you know slowly changing, but it's not like a driven, welcomed, integrated thing yet, unfortunately.
0: Slightly rising out of that, I'd like to ask about um, just mentioned. You're starting the current volume of uh, Restoration in 1961. Now, a lot of the black and colored and um, Asian origin cricketers you were writing about, they must be still alive. And I uh, Imagine you've had some moving sort of personal encounters with some of them. Perhaps you could tell us about that.
2: Yes. Uh, for me as a white South African, growing up in a very white world and not playing cricket with anyone until I was in my mid 20s, other than white people. And then joining the non racial cricketers, as we discussed last time, Mm. I came across this, both through my writing and research, but also, in a in a personal sense, this incredibly rich culture of cricket. And it came from people whose grandfathers had been presidents 70 years before, whose grandfathers and fathers had played provincial cricket like they were doing then. So these were family traditions of decades that uh, were being perpetuated and had a wonderful character, as you find in all over the world where there are distinct flavors of cricket. And um, with undoubted skill, because that Oliveira team was brilliant, as he himself sh- showed. One of his um, teammates, five of his teammates, ended up li- uh, immigrating because of the uh, restrictions in the country on racial restrictions on the on, on essentially middle class uh, mobility. I would say. And um, so his teammates ended up living in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and Britain. And Cecil Abrams played league uh, cricket Mm -hmm. there. Um, Owen Williams uh, played league cricket, was offered a contract by Warwickshire, and uh, became friends with Dennis Lilly and ended up playing and living in Australia. And these are the natural progressions that people would have made if we had not had That hundred year post uh, Cecil John Rhodes color bar. And when I joined the non racial sport ranks, uh, there was both uh, the beauty of the love for the game and the way it was expressed, uh, you know, um, in Cape Town society, but also the tragedies uh, that people had to face, the difficulties they had to overcome. So for instance, um, George Van Uert, who is a provincial all-rounder, his father was involved in a car accident on one rainy day in Main Road in Woodstock. Um, The hospital is fairly nearby. The ambulance came, saw he was colored and said, sorry, this is a white ambulance, left him in the rain and he eventually died. Um, his, His children, seven children, who were brought up by a single mother, they had to decide which ones had to go to, could go to school and which ones uh, had to go to work to earn money. And uh, George himself remembers going to school uh, with a wooden suitcase with his pencils and stuff, making noises and feeling very humiliated because of this poverty. And, I mean, there are numerous absolutely moving stories like that uh, that are all come down to this to this uh, discrimination based on race that underpinned everything in a systemic way. Uh, the other place where that was very evident was in the forced removals under the Group Areas Act. In Cape Town, um, 60,000 people were forcefully removed from their homes. In the late 50s, a, a A letter came through the post box as they did in the old days and it said um, your home has been this area has been declared a white area and you have to leave by so and so date in 1961 or whatever you then had to sell the property at the rates decided on by the city council which is often at below uh, commercial value and start up again in the dusty townships of Cape Town, which are today gang areas. So um, an 80 year tradition of cricket in the city areas. Claremont and Newlands around the stadium were 50% mixed suburbs in 1900 already. Today they gentrified and totally white. No sign of that. those removals that had happened. And part of the tragedy of the removals was the destruction of the infrastructure of communities, including their sports clubs. So when I joined non-racial sport, I played for a club called United Cricket Club at Greenpoint. And that was a team that was made up of the remnants of 13 clubs that had been broken up by the forced removals. And that's why they called themselves United and played um, at Greenpoint. And the memories are still very, very strong amongst those people about what happened to them. And this is totally un- inseparable from the cricket experience, the cricket cultures. There's the one of the oldest mosques in Cape Town is in Main Road, Claremont, about 500 yards from the Newland Stadium. And Every Friday afternoon, the cricketers after mosque would parade up and down Main Road, which is today a very busy and upmarket shopping area, uh, in their cricket clothes and blazers, in their cricket whites and blazers, and the weekend of cricket lay ahead. So that's, you know, how, how interwoven cricket was with the culture of a community in that area where today people have can't afford to buy back in except for the wealthy. And my friend, uh, Sally Green, was a very good left-arm fast bowler and uh, used to feel in the gully next to me at SLIP. And we talked and um, developed a wonderful friendship. And he told me when I was writing the one of the first books on the experience, he said, I remember going... With my mother to say goodbye to the neighbours when they had to leave, and um, he said, "I can still feel the pain. Her pain went into my body, and she she got sick soon after she was moved, and um, you know the the entire the entire well being of people was." was ruptured through these brutal and stupid um,
1: legislation. So we're talking here, aren't we, about this is ethnic cleansing in quite recent times. And of course, Greenpoint, it's so symbolic because that's where the first cricket matches were played uh, in South Africa um, when the colonists arrived. Um, uh, and that's, a, uh, for me, I, I went there with Basil D'Oliveira. He oh. played all of his, he showed me the area and he played all of his cricket there for a long time. And of course, then they, St. Augustine's, his club, had to move. They were, they moved to a new venue, I think, from memory in the west, in the west of um, west of Cape Town.
2: So and, this is, um, Peter, just to uh, exactly what you're saying. I mean, can you imagine 60,000 people being forcefully removed in a city of... A f- 2 million people it's a massive kind of rupture and event in that city's life and today uh, people still say forget the past get on with it what are you moaning about what is this transformation stuff <laughs> did people play you know all these kind of people are stuck in these old mentalities which um, they which is why recognition is such an important act uh, in terms of um, of sport and what people have lost and what they've been through, and yet come through all that, still celebrating the game, still finding ways to be resilient and uh, have fun and 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 play basically, and uh, the new generation, the, the new generation have basically shown that. Um, if if people had if we'd lived in normal society, we would have had wonderful players over the years.
0: Tell us about some of them, Andre. There must, and it uh, links to something that Peter and I have been campaigning about. Up to 1970, there are some obviously some great South African test cricketers, but, but they're all white. There must have been also some uh, considerable number of white cricketers who represented South Africa who would have been displaced by you know a normal um racially integrated um team selecting from all the races of South Africa. You must have discovered some uh, black and colored Asian mm. players who really should have played Test cricket as um, for south Africa as as Basil D'Oliveira should have done it in his prime.
2: Can you tell us about some of them Yes well the you know there was a a player called Talib Sali already way back in the 1920s. And we spoke about last time about the 1890s, how talented players were. But he captained Western Province for 20 years. He uh, was a great uh, um, uh, left arm spin bowler. And he was invited to go and play cricket in in England. But uh, for various reasons, um, he didn't go. Captain of of his of the province for twenty years, which were the champions in all but two competitions in that time, uh, scored a double hundred and was legendary. Dol Freeman was another one. Um, Dolivera's whole team, which Peter can tell you about,
1: yeah.
2: um, were were Eric Peterson was a bowler who took pleasure in actually getting D'Oliveira out all the time. Um, You know, he had this confidence. He was a rough, working-class guy who never let anything put him off and um, got into trouble for um, disciplinary reasons from time to time, as good fast bowlers (laughs) do (laughs) sometimes. And, um, you know, John Waite... Let's
1: let's just name some of those. Lobo uh, Abed, who... Yes, very good observers. Sam was as good a wicketkeeper as Godfrey Evans. The Hampshire Hampshire's Jack Newman on a coaching trip to Cape Town watched him. He said he was as good as Evans. Ben Malamba, we haven't mentioned. Yes, probably quicker.
2: Who also played rugby for uh, for the national black team. I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: Um, and of course Peterson and Sack Abrahams actually was. I mean, Sack Abrahams was a much better bowler than Dallavira. I mean, but it's, it's interesting. In the fifties, I looked at the records. Dallavira rarely got called on to bowl. Dallavira was a very fine bowler who was was excellent. Uh, you know, he's a good bowler at Test level, very good at English county level. He he wasn't necessarily good enough to play in some of the black mm. leagues in the nineteen fifties
2: as a
0: bowler. Mm.
2: No. And then, um, you know, so in every decade, the people will will have their euros and the statistics are now there as well to see how some people stood out. I mean, Owen Williams to go from Cape Town and no opportunity to to England and then going to get through cricket, go to live in Australia, for instance, just shows that. But in the later period. Uh, The Group Areas Act destroyed the kind of base of cricket. Mm -hmm. And the younger generation of the 80s were perhaps not as at the high level of the 60s before that radical dislocation of of community happened. But there were wonderful players, uh, including uh, Saeed Majid and his brother Rushdie played in England and in the leagues as well. But Saeed was uh, an all-rounder who could hit the ball far uh, came off a fairly short run up and bowled very sort of uh, aggressively and uh, always performed at the, on the big occasion, you know, so he is a standout player in, in South African um, non-racial sport in the seventies and eighties. And uh, Vincent Barnes, who today is a coach at Cricket South Africa uh, took by far the most wickets as a fast bowler. And, um, he, he commented how his stats were helped by the poor wickets. So you, you tend to see the batting figures don't look great because the wickets uh, weren't prepared. I remember playing for Western Province uh, one day in Port Elizabeth. It was early in the season. And literally, the pitch had not been prepared maybe a, few, a day or two uh, after the rugby season. And I think there were 11 ducks in that match and two fifties, and that (laughs) determined the outcome. So that is the kind of challenges that players uh, faced. But uh, Saeed Majid actually scored a 50 in that game, which showed how he could do it when the chips were down, you know. So people talk about them in in legendary fashion, the characters that existed and the talent that existed. And... um, I don't think it serves much purpose trying to, to compare against uh, this one or that. But in 1961, when um, a cricket benefactor S.A. Hawk um, challenged the white cricketers, of which several were national players, but all pl- played for Transvaal, the, the black cricketers won the game. Mm-hmm. And John Waite, the South African wicketkeeper, said of D'Oliveira, um, you know he's is uh, maybe top of the pile on that side, but uh, the coloured people uh, in cricket, as in in uh, industry and politics, aren't uh, yet uh, aren't ready, uh, aren't capable of uh, rising to the highest standard. When D'Oliveira, um played for England, he ended up playing more matches than Waite at a higher average uh, in in batting. And John Waite was rated as a middle order wicketkeeper batsman. So, you know, the kind of assumptions that were made and in the few cases that people could display themselves uh, what happened uh, also show how weak those kind of arguments, that that kind of... um, Prejudice was, basically. It wasn't informed opinion.
1: And that's why, of course, the selection by the... Uh, eventual selection by the MCC of Basil d'Olivera, it mattered so much to South Africa and its evil ideology of apartheid that uh from the Cape, uh, Cape Coloured, as they called him, should not be selected for England because he would destroy that... Um, false story that Blacks people were somehow
2: inferior. Just to then uh, bring us to a close on the point that you've made, Peter, um, how the systemic discrimination happened. It really has continued after unity as well. Uh, There've been very good intentions. People have worked hard to build unity. We've come a long way in many ways in the 30 years since then. But given that 200 plus year history and the level of exclusion and marginalization that happened, uh, we're still very far from being where we should be. Uh, The kind of um, notion of this isn't their game definitely was strong in in the 1990s throughout that. Um, only three players had played in the first seven years of, after South Africa's uh, readmission. And it was after the Transformation Charter was um, agreed on in 1998 that specific targets were set to try and uh, break the glass ceilings, particularly at the leadership level in cricket and at the top level of playing. And that led to uh, decent short-term results but the resilience of the anti-transformation lobby, the resilience of the old structures and the old cultures still means that 30 years later, we are struggling, we are, we are hearing Black players say, I sat in the corner in the dressing room, I wasn't seen um, uh, or heard or taken seriously. Makai um, with a paradoxical amazing testimony of the loneliness uh, he felt in the team bus and therefore ran to the stadiums there and back famously to stay fit and just feel free, I suppose. And there have been a lot of that kind of testimony. It came as a shock when it happened last year. A lot of people were in denial. But over the past three weeks, there have been amazing testimonies that have been uh, uh, reported in the newspapers, and there's a definite feeling, I think, something special has happened in the last month, in terms of which a point of no return has been reached, uh, in terms of tolerating um, what has happened in the past, and that, that um, you know, as Michael Holding said, we can no longer just keep on laughing, grimacing, and moving on. And that's what the Black South African players said last uh, last year. They quoted Holding, and um, so there's a need to you know understand how this past has has happened, how old attitudes and assumptions are reproduced, and it's past the stage of saying they teething problems now. They cannot be allowed to continue for any longer is what the players are saying who've testified and in that sense I think on a psychological level we are reaching a moment where South African crickets going on to another level of progress.
1: That's absolutely fascinating a very powerful moment to end this completely amazing and enlightening uh, discussion. I think we ought to Richard uh, have uh, maybe moali um very good south african cricket journalist on very soon to tell us about the uh, kind of revelations which are coming out of um uh, of south african cricket at the moment but um andre it's such a privilege to talk to you thank you very very much
0: it is andre thank you again for um, for joining us uh, obviously this um very best of uh, luck with um uh, your own work, which becomes ever more important in reclaiming the lost history of um, South African cricket and um,
2: affirming that it is a
0: game for everyone in South Africa um, and not just the privileged white race, as it was in the past. So thank you again for joining us.
2: Wonderful. Thank you very much. And as an opening batsman, thanks for the second innings opportunity.
1: (laughs) It's goodbye for me, Peter O'Born, in sunny Wiltshire.
0: It's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in still rather overcast southeast London.